0: We're going to be in Matthew 26 again today. We're going to be finishing up the last part. And uh, I I did something a little unusual, but hopefully helpful. And as we read through the text today, we're going to take it slow because what I've tried to do is piece together the different gospel accounts so that you can get the full living color picture of what was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane and in Jesus' arrest um, to really take it in and process it. So we're going to kind of... Uh, piece that together as we go and make a few comments before we dive into our text and wrap up some points. So stay with us. But Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. There's a Bible under the chair in front of you if you don't have one, or you can find it on a mobile app and bring it up. And we're in Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the Mount of Olives, or the olive grove, called Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means olive press. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. And if you think about it, when have you ever in the gospels heard Jesus say anything like that? Uh, The vulnerability right now of what he's going through is just huge. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went a little farther Luke tells us it was about a stone's throw away, and he bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, literally, Abba, daddy, all things are possible for you, Mark interjects at this point. So if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. So Jesus is not wondering if, There's something that is outside the realm of God's ability to perform. But he's saying, if it's consistent with your will, if it's consistent with your divine plan, um, do whatever you think best. At this point, Luke tells us, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Verse 40 in Matthew. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. And he said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not enter into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body or the flesh is weak. Luke 22 adds that the disciples were actually sleeping because they were overcome by sorrow. To their credit. Verse 42. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, If this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. And Mark tells us, and they didn't know what to answer him. So he prayed a third time, saying the same things again. And he came to the disciples and said, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up. Let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. John's Gospel, chapter 18, informs us that part of this crowd involved a Roman cohort. A Roman cohort meant 600 men. And very, very rarely it referred to a smaller detachment made up of 200 men. But it's somewhere between 200 to 600 guys with swords and clubs. Talk about overkill for a teacher in the temple who's unarmed. They had been sent, John tells us, by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor Judas had given them a prearranged signal You will know which one to arrest when I give him a kiss. Verse 49 So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed. And gave him the kiss. Jesus said, "My friend." And Luke tells us that he said, "Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss?" It's interesting here that the Greek word that Jesus uses for friend refers to an acquaintance or an association. It's it's not the closeness and the affection of the usual word for friend, which is philos. It was uh, used previously by Jesus in Matthew in the parables concerning someone who had taken advantage of a privileged relationship. So basically a false disciple. Jesus says, go ahead and do what you've come for. Now at this point, John's gospel adds one of the most beautiful, powerful things, one of my favorite things in all of the gospel record. John chapter 18 says, So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus said to them, I am he. Literally, he said, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is like a Monty Python scene. I mean, there's two to 600 men, including Judas and this whole other gang that come to arrest. They're armed with swords and clubs. And they're looking for Jesus. They asked for him, and he says, I am he, because he's saying Yahweh's name. It's the same name for Yahweh in the Old Testament. And they all hit the ground. And so Jesus has to ask again here. Therefore he said again to them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which was spoken of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. That was his prophecy before that of all that the Heavenly Father had given to him, he lost not one, except for Judas, who was destined. This shows Jesus' true power above and beyond anything else that I can think of in the Gospels, his authority. Here is a single, lonely, unarmed figure against hundreds of them who are armed and equipped, yet face-to-face with him, they're the ones who retreat and fall to the ground. Incredible power. uh, End of verse 50, then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. Verse 51, but Peter, John's gospel tells us, pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, Malchus, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Then he adds in John's gospel, the cup that the Father has given to me, shall I not drink it? And then Luke tells us that he touched the servant's ear and healed him. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly? Some of your Bibles say legions of angels, 12 legions. A legion was a 1,000 men. And the the thought here is a legion for each one of them. Since Judas has gone, Christ and his 11 disciples, there's 12. And so a legion of angels for each one of them. But if I did... Would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Verse 55, Then Jesus said to the crowd, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you have come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. But this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. At that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Verse 57, Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, uh, Peter followed him at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. John's gospel tells us that John knew the officials there, and he's the one that told the attendant at the gate to bring Peter in, that allowed Peter to come in. So Peter wasn't alone, but John the disciple was with him. Verse 59, inside the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so that they could put him to death with horrible intentions. But even though they had found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared This man had said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Remember that in the ancient world, every fact or testimony was either confirmed or uh, disproven in the presence of two or three witnesses. So that's why they want two witnesses. And by the way, they are completely misquoting Jesus and taking it out of context. Because Jesus didn't say that he would destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple, meaning his body. And I will raise it up in three days. He wasn't talking about desecrating the temple of God, but he was referring to his own body as God's dwelling and saying that he would raise that in three days. Mark adds at this point that even though these people were willing to give false testimony, even their testimonies weren't consistent with one another. Just a a mockery. Verse 62 Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Why aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus' silence fulfills Isaiah 53, verse 7, which talks about a lamb who is led to slaughter, who does not open its mouth. And it places the responsibility for his death squarely on his accusers. Because at this point, Caiaphas and the leaders are trying to get him to admit to this charge so that they can nail him for insurrection, for they can, so they can prove to the Romans he's involved in treason. Verse 64, Jesus replied, You have said it, or it's just as you have said, and in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's quoting here, and he's actually fulfilling the prophecy in Daniel 7, which says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." So if the religious leaders had really known their scripture, they would have known that Jesus was not blaspheming, but he was fulfilling this prophecy. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror. And he said, blasphemy, why do we need any other witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. He wasn't blaspheming because Jesus was affirming that he was the Messiah. He tore his clothes and was in horror because Jesus claimed to be God. Because only Yahweh God is the one who rode upon the clouds. No one else did that but God. And, and please understand this. The Jewish people never expected or perceived that the Messiah would be God. The Messiah would just be a messenger of God. So when Jesus is claiming not only to be the Messiah, but to be God in human flesh, that's too much for them. And that's what he's tearing his robes over, which according to Leviticus was prohibited, forbidden. Verse 66. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists. And some slapped him, jeering. Prophesy to us, you Messiah. Who hit you that time? Verse 69. Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came over and said to him, You were one of those with Jesus, the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man, he said. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, You must be one of them. I can tell by your Galilean accent. You have to know that all of the disciples except for Judas were from Galilee. And Judeans in Jerusalem recognized Galileans by the differences in the way that they accented and pronounced the guttural sounds of the Aramaic language. So that kind of gave them away. Uh, John chapter 18, verse 26, also tells us that one of these last accusers was a relative of Malchus, the guy who got his ear cut off, and he was in the garden. And he said, I saw you there. You cut off my, my relative's ear. And this is where Peter loses it in verse 74. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And John t- actually, Luke tells us that at this point, Jesus turns and looks at Peter. One of the most powerful scenes in The Passion of the Christ. Not a look of judgment, but a look of deep sorrow and sadness and, and true love. And suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And he went away weeping bitterly. A lot going on here. A lot of verses to cover. And I want to focus on three things today. And if you're taking notes, they all begin with the letter P. And we do that not just for alliteration, but so you can remember them. There is a continual contrast of Power in this passage. That's why I've I've titled today's lesson Power Contrast. There's there's the, the power of Jesus against the powerlessness of those who oppose him or who disassociate themselves from him. And one of the first power contrasts we see has to do with the power of prayer. The power of prayer. Author Henry Nouwen says this He says, In the midst of a busy schedule of activities, healing suffering people, casting out devils, responding to impatient disciples, traveling from town to town, and preaching from synagogue to synagogue, we find these quiet words in the Gospels. In the morning, long before dawn, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a lonely place and prayed there. Henry Nowen comments, The more I read this, nearly silent sentence locked in between the loud words of action, the more I have the sense that the secret of Jesus' ministry is hidden in that lonely place where he went to pray, early in the morning, long before dawn. In the lonely place, Jesus finds the power to follow God's will and not his own, to speak God's words and not his own, to do God's work and not his own. It is in the lonely place where Jesus enters into intimacy with the Father, and the ministry is born. I've said many times, and I firmly believe, the battle of the cross was won in Gethsemane. Jesus was tempted beyond what we can even imagine in carrying the weight of the the world's sin upon his shoulders, knowing that he would be the once and for all sacrificial Lamb of God. And that pressure and that temptation and that, that challenge and that trial in the garden was really uh, more excruciating than than everything he endured on the cross. And that's where the battle was won. A, A few hours earlier than the garden of Gethsemane in the upper room, Jesus had said in Luke 22 31 records this, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like sand or like wheat. And Jesus gives us an insight into that that spiritual warfare that is happening all the time that most of us are just completely oblivious to. And I'm positive that that continued even in the garden. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Friends, prayer, as as Daniel Henderson, we we hosted a simulcast prayer conference here about two years ago. Daniel Henderson was a keynote speaker. And I remember one of the things he said is that prayer is not just the way that we fight the spiritual battle. Prayer is the battle. If you've ever struggled in prayer, it's because prayer is actually the literal, physical, spiritual battle. As you're agonizing through the Holy Spirit pleading for us and, and interceding for us and articulating our needs to God, prayer is the way that we win the battle. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing here, exactly what he was tapping into. In the garden in verse 41, Jesus commands Peter, James, and John. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Those words, watching and praying, are present active uh, tense, meaning continual. Continually pray and watch. Never stop. Keep praying. Keep watching that you may not enter into temptation. And it's worth noting that the people of the first century prayed not only out loud, but they prayed with their eyes open. And so Jesus, in exhorting them and commanding them to pray, is actually helping them to stay alert and to stay watchful. Because the more that they're praying and saying something and engaging with the Heavenly Father, the more chance they have of not falling asleep and succumbing to temptation. Incidentally, that same Greek word that's used for being watchful and alert is the same word that's used in every end time passage referring to you and I today as well. So we are drawn into this passage as well, that we are to remain alert and watchful for Christ's return and not to fall asleep. We think of the parable that Jesus told of the ten virgins who were waiting to get inside the wedding feast and they fall asleep. And some were ready and some weren't ready. That was a tragedy. Well, the second P that I see in our passage is the power of proclamation. The power of proclamation. Phil Wickham has a worship song called At Your Name, which we've sang many times. and We're going to sing it in a little bit as well. At Your Name, the mountains shake and crumble. At Your Name, the oceans roar and tumble. At Your Name, angels will bow. The earth will rejoice. Your people cry out. Lord of all the earth, we shout Your Name. Shout Your Name. Filling up the skies with endless praise. Endless praise. Yahweh, Yahweh. We love to shout your name, O Lord. The sad thing is that the Jewish people never said the name Yahweh, because they felt it was too holy to be uttered by human lips. You have the consonants of the Y and the H and the W and the H, and that's where the word Jehovah came from. It's actually kind of a a cheap imitation of the word Yahweh, because they wouldn't say Yahweh, so they called him Jehovah instead. But... It's a name that Jesus gave to to Abraham and to Moses and to Isaac and Jacob. Whenever someone said, what's your name? I am. That's who I am. And so when Jesus says that in the New Testament, they they know that he is claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. And there's power in that name. There's power in proclaiming that. And I think sometimes we forget the power of God's name, the power of Jesus' name. We actually shy away from saying Jesus' name in public. And that's where our very power is. It's not a hocus-pocus. There's, there's power and authority in the name. <coughs> Philippians 2 reminds us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is God to the glory of God the Father. Throughout the New Testament, in the name of Jesus, demons were exercised. The blind, the deaf, and the mute were healed. The dead were brought back to life in the name of Jesus. That's where the power is. That's where the power is, the power of proclamation. And we forget that so many times. Author Carl uh, Medeiros actually visited a mission school at a large church in Waco, Texas, where he asked a group of people, What's the gospel? This is him retelling the the story. A young lady raised her hand. The free gift of God. Good, I said. I went to the chalkboard and wrote, gift of from God. Somebody else? Freedom from sin, a man near the back called out. Eternal life, said another. Keep going, I said. I stayed busy at the chalkboard listing the items that, that came in. Freedom, righteousness, moral purity, grace, unconditional love, healing and deliverance, redemption, faith in God, new life. After five minutes or so, we had filled the chalkboard with a lot of things that we believed were the gospel. Excellent, I said. Did-, did we miss something? The room was silent for a minute. I could see heads turning. I could hear pages rustling. Everybody seemed to think there was something significant missing, but nobody wanted to volunteer to name the missing item. Finally, after a period of silence, a girl near the front raised her hand. How come none of us? Mention Jesus exactly I said we closed the session and went to a break point made friends a gospel without Jesus is a powerless gospel and I mean not just the message of Jesus and his ministry and what he did but without the name of Jesus if you're sharing the gospel with somebody and, and Jesus's name never comes up it, it's a powerless gospel And again, it's not hocus-pocus. It's not semantics. It is the name of God, the name of Jesus, has inerrant power in it. Bernard of Clairvaux once said, I preached myself, and the scholars came and praised me. I preached Christ, and the sinners came and thanked me. And we're all sinners. We're all thankful for the message of the gospel. Speaking to a group of Christians, one time I got... Mahatma Gandhi said, you Christians have in your keeping a document with enough dynamite in it to blow the whole of civilization to bits, to turn society upside down, to bring peace to this war-torn world. But you read it as if it were just good literature, nothing else. When we read God's word, when we proclaim God's name, do we realize and do we live with the reality that there is power? It is living and active. It is not good literature. It is not just good advice. It is the power of God to bear in my life and your life and in this world, and we need to treat it as such. World-famous violinist Fritz Kreisler he lived from 1875 and died in 1962. Earned a fortune with his concerts and compositions. But he generously gave most of his money away. So when he discovered an exquisite violin on one of his trips, he wasn't able to buy it. Later, after raising enough money, he returned to the cellar, hoping to purchase the beautiful instrument. But to his great disappointment, it had been sold to a collector. Chrysler <coughs> made his way to the new owner's home, And offered to buy the violin. The collector said that it had become his most prized possession and he wouldn't sell it. Chrysler was about to leave when he had an idea. Could I play the instrument one more time before it is consigned to silence, he asked. Permission was granted. And the great virtuoso filled the room with such heart-stirring music that the collector was brought to tears. I have no right to keep this to myself, he exclaimed. It's yours, Mr. Gracler. Take it into the world and let people hear it. Friends, that's the message of the gospel. Take it into the world and let people hear it. And as you take the gospel into the world, proclaim the name of God. Proclaim the name of Jesus. And let people know the power and authority that is in that name. How powerful that is. The third P in our passage has to do with prophecy, the power of prophecy. And as we've seen not only in our passage today, all the times where it says uh, this happened in order that what was written might be fulfilled or such and such happened in order that such and such might be fulfilled. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And so he is trying to convince them that Jesus is not only the promised Messiah, but that he is God in human flesh. Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy not only validates the truth of his life and his ministry, but it also affirms that God is a God who keeps his promises. God is a God who keeps his promises. The power of prophecy is the power of a promise kept. And every time we read a uh, a fulfilled prophecy, we can know this is another example of God being true to his word and God keeping his promise. If we believe in the authority of Scripture, then prophecy is not some crazy field of study for a few fanatics and radicals that get obsessed with end-time discussions. It's a picture of our future, you and I. It's a, a foretaste of what awaits all Christians, what we have to look forward to. As Christians, we know the end of the story, and we have the advantage of, therefore, working backward. We can apply the blessed hope and glory that awaits us to our present challenges and live in the reality and the light of what God has declared to be true, even when it conflicts with the pessimistic uh, negativity and evil of our present circumstances living in light of the the, the declared truth of the future and the glory of what awaits us and applying that to right now, to the hard stuff that we're going through and living in light of that. I read this week that the prince of Grenada, an heir to the Spanish crown, was sentenced to life in solitary confinement in Madrid's ancient prison. The dreadful, dirty, and dreary nature of the place earned it the name, the place of the skull. Everyone knew that once you were there, you would never come out alive. The prince was given one book to read the entire time, the Bible. With only one book to read, he read it hundreds and hundreds of time. times. The book became a constant companion for him. After 33 years of imprisonment, he died. And when they came to clean out his cell, they found some notes that he had written using nails to mark the soft stone of the prison walls. These are some examples of his notes. Psalm 118 verse eight is the middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 7:21 contains all the letters of the alphabet except the letter J. The ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Esther is the longest verse in the Bible. No word or name, more than six syllables, can be found in the Bible, and on and on. And on. This is a man who read the book of God, the word of God, hundreds of times over 33 years. And there's no evidence that he ever came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. There's no evidence that he ever came into a relationship with God. He just filled his head with Bible trivia and facts. Friends, may that not be us. May we not be those who know so much Scripture and can readily repeat verses and give answers for every theological question or dilemma, but we have no ability to make it ours and affirm the truth of who Jesus is, that we need a Savior, that we need someone to rescue us. What a tragedy that would be. What a tragedy. Some closing thoughts. When the Last Supper was finished, and Jesus' words to his disciples and his prayer to his heavenly Father were complete, the Gospels tell us that they left the upper room for the Garden of Gethsemane. Their path would lead out of a gate and down a steep ravine across the Kidron Brook, and undoubtedly they would have seen an amazing sight. At this time, all the Passover lambs were killed in the temple. And the blood of the lambs was poured on the altar as an offering to God. The number of the lambs slain that particular year for Passover was upward of 256,000 lambs. We know this because of the Jewish historian Josephus. And you can only imagine what the temple courts looked like after all of these lambs were slaughtered. But also from the altar, there was a channel down to the Kidron brook. And through that channel, the blood of the Passover lambs would drain away. And so as Jesus and his disciples crossed that brook, it would have still been red from all of the blood of these thousands and thousands of lambs. The disciples would have not thought anything of it. They had seen this every Passover. But for Jesus, imagine what that drew up in his heart and his mind, knowing that he was the Lamb of God that would be slain for our sins. One last thing that's really interesting is, and you can go and study this later, it's fascinating. In John's gospel, John leaves out both the name of the garden, he doesn't call it the the garden of Gethsemane, he just calls it the garden. And he also leaves out its location, that it's on the Mount of Olives. In order to associate the garden, even to equate it with the garden where Jesus was crucified, buried, and where he rose again. John 19.41, you can look that up. Because for John, the garden of Gethsemane has become a sort of new garden of Eden. And the tree of life has transformed into the cross through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The point being that sin was brought into this world through the garden, and sin was defeated once and for all at the garden and in the garden My prayer this morning is that you know Jesus, not just facts about him, not just, oh, I've heard the name and I've heard this and that, but that you have a personal relationship with him. Because he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to God except through me. And I've said so many times, if all roads led to God, how foolish of Jesus to die brutally on the cross for our sins. If there were many other paths and ways to God, the scripture made it clear there is no way to God, there is no way to eternal life except through Jesus. And it's through acknowledging that, affirming that, and receiving that personally that we become children of God, that we enter into eternal life. And it starts from the moment we make that confession. It's not one day when we die. That eternal life begins working in us right now. And I pray that if there's anybody here who's never done that, that today would be the day that you do that. For the rest of us who have made that That we live in light of prophecy. That what we read and what we hear is not just something that's stimulating and fascinating, but it changes the way that we live until he comes back. Let's pray.